0: I'm Aaron Rothstein of the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Bioethics and American Democracy Program. Welcome to Searching for Medicine's Soul. Today's guest is Dr. Lana Yurkowicz. She is a physician practicing oncology and internal medicine on the faculty of Stanford Medicine. Her medical journalism has been published in The Atlantic, Scientific American, The Best American Science and Nature Writing and Elsewhere. She's the recent author of the book Fragmented, Doctor's Quest to Piece Together American healthcare. Alana, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I found myself nodding my head vigorously in agreement and sympathy with many of the stories in your book. And I'd like for our listeners to hear how these stories illustrate wider problems with the American medical system. But maybe let's start with the problem itself. What does it mean to say that our, our system is fragmented? I write in
1: the intro of the book that at this point, it's become a cliche to say that healthcare is broken. And that's what you usually hear. But I believe the truth of this is both a lot deeper and a lot more specific than that cliche lets on. And I write that medicine is fragmented. My main argument is that medicine is fragmented. And what I mean by that is our system functions to insert gaps into a patient's story by design such that the end result is that healthcare workers, including doctors like me, are constantly working in a state of being partially blindfolded and having to make crucial decisions, even life and death decisions, on patients while partially blindfolded and not having a vantage point of being able to see the patient's full story. So I divide the book into three sections, and just very briefly, I'll outline my arguments there. The first section is called The Data Dig. And so it gets into all the ways that our healthcare system blocks doctors from being able to access important data about patients so that they can see their full full story. The second part is called loss to follow-up, and it gets into the ways that our system functions to block a patient from following up with the same doctor who knows their story So a regular doctor, whether that's a a primary care doctor in the clinic or even the same regular doctor in the hospital from day to day. And then finally, the third section is about culture and mindsets and how we have uh, certain attitudes from actually within the medical community that can foster a fragmented way of thinking about patient stories. And that includes things like quick fixes, reacting to a snapshot of a patient's narrative, as well as a focus on specialization and subspecialization Such that each doctor is looking at a body part or an organ system of a patient and not the patient's whole story.
0: Right. And maybe also you can introduce our listeners to to how you approach looking at a chart to gather history about the patient, because I think it's not something that we've talked about on the podcast here, but it is such a dramatically time consuming task. So maybe walk us through what you do. You're seeing a new patient in clinic or in the hospital. How do you approach things?
1: When I see a new patient in clinic now, if I am doing it right, it probably takes me about 30 minutes just to do that chart preparation part of gathering these slips of data and trying to put them together into a meaningful narrative so that I can understand why they're here, what I need to focus on, and that's next steps. So, there's a couple things I do. And actually I read in the book that my approach differs depending on where I am. So if I'm in the hospital admitting a patient versus in the clinic seeing a new patient, my approach is actually completely different. So let's start with the clinic. So I'm in a clinic meeting a new patient. Our healthcare uh, records are organized such that if you use even the most common one, which is EPIC, there are dozens of tabs lining the top of the screen <laughs> there. You're nodding along. There's dozens of tabs lining the side of the screen and you get to choose, you get to choose where you start and why. So for me, I usually start with the medication list when I'm seeing a new patient in clinic. And by the way, that medication list is put into multiple places. So I happen to pick the one at the top of the screen just because and I think it's line. often
0: wrong. Like I don't, I think there are yeah. oftentimes where the list is not right. At least in it, some it, of the patients. Absolutely is. And one of the big problems there is that
1: uh, when patients change their medication list, when they do a medication reconciliation at home through a patient portal, it's not updated to every tab of the medication list on our side. So if you look at the wrong tab, you're not seeing the most accurate medication list. And this actually comes up all the time where when I started out as an attending, patients were coming into clinic and saying, I updated my medication list. Don't you see that? And I didn't. And that can cause huge problems. I mean, I just want to emphasize these are not minor things that not only do we have an inaccurate medication list as doctors, then we're doing the manual labor and wasting time in the room with the patient going through and reinventing the wheel, something they already did on their computers at home. So, I mean, there's two huge sins here. Again, it's the errors that can happen from having the wrong medications. And then it's the manual labor and the time that we're wasting doing this. So yes, I start with the medication list. I don't always get an accurate medication list. I always confirm that with the patient once they come into clinic. And then I start looking through previous notes. That's usually the second thing I do where I start a note myself and I have kind of the general outline of it, the patient's history, medical conditions, et cetera. And then I'm clicking through prior notes, meaning prior um, accounts from other doctors, and then copy pasting important information from there into my note, as well as recent data. So then I start clicking through labs and test results, and then I'm copying pasting those into my note. So then when I have my note that's sort of ready to go to see the patient, um, I have copy pasted a lot of disparate pieces of information from disparate parts of the chart where I'm trying to put it together into a meaningful narrative where I feel like I have a good grasp of the patient's medical history. We mentioned errors with medications. There's also errors in other parts of the chart. Uh, If you ever look at the tab called the problem list, you've probably noticed that that is riddled with errors because every time you have to order a new test or medication on a patient, you have to associate it for billing with a problem. And if you, if the patient, let's say, is there for dizziness and you type in dizziness, you'll get this whole list of things. And you're just looking for the one that says dizziness. And very often providers will just click on something that's not 100% correct just because they need to get through their day and they need to order the test. Look, I've done this too. So then over time, the problem list has become cluttered with errors. And so I will say, I look at the problem list, but I take it with a bit more of a grain of salt compared to objective data like labs test results hope <laughs> medications hopefully once i confirm them with the patient and then again i'm trying to put them together into a note which is a story i write my note like a story to myself so that i feel like i actually understand what their medical history is
0: yeah i think we have a similar approach there the other thing that you know i notice and you mentioned this in the book too is the imaging aspect of this. So like Mm -hmm. patients come in and they have, sometimes there'll be a read from the radiologist of of a particular image that they got. And sometimes there will be no image and no read of the image, but it's reported that they had imaging done somewhere. And so then you're in this position where you can't really look at the image. You don't know what the image actually showed officially from the read. And sometimes what happens, patients will come in with a CD from the other hospital. And then you'll have to upload that into the chart and look at it before or during the actual patient visit. So I've had patient visits where they're sitting in silence as I'm like scrolling through images. And it's a terrible feeling because it's a waste of their time. And it means that I'm not prepared too. I'm sure you've had that experience as well, right? Absolutely. It is insanely convoluted to upload images
1: into our charts. So there's a couple issues here. One is that we are even using things like CDs. And I cite some, some research by uh, a person named Carolyn Lai in my book. She was a, a Yale medical student and law student, where she did a study looking at how um, imaging was uploaded to doctors. And while 80%, something like 80% of hospitals said they could offer images on CDs, it was something like only 4% said they could offer it through an electronic portal and eight percent through an email. So first of all, we, we, we're using CDs. Second of all, the CDs are not always compatible then with our software. I don't know if you've had this experience, but that actually sounds like a pretty good outcome to me that you were able to even upload the image and scroll through it in front of the patient. Very often, someone will bring yeah. Very often, someone will bring me a CD and it's just literally incompatible with our software system, and so I can't upload it, and it's. You can't do anything with it during the visit, it becomes a paperweight. And in order to actually upload it, it involves going to, for us, I mean it involves going to a different building, which is where medical records is, and it's walking over to the hospital and handing them the CVs with a paper form saying where they came from. And then there's a wait time until they get uploaded into the system. And there's a lot of problems that can happen along the way. Sometimes I do even all of those steps and the CD is never actually uploaded in a way where I can still see the images, and the same thing happens with reports. You know, we talked about just now all the ways that I sort through my own electronic chart, looking for patient data, uh, trying to put it together into a note and a meaningful narrative. I guess what I really I, I didn't mention that I that I'm often doing as well is I'm clicking in a tab called Care Everywhere, where you're looking at different healthcare facilities which is good that that tab exists now. Um, you know, when I started writing about this years ago, that tab was a lot more minuscule and we didn't have access easily to other healthcare facilities, meaning if someone gets a scan like a CV or an x-ray somewhere else, even a hospital just up the block, often that information would go missing. Now, I, I would say it's it's more of a mixed bag. I cite data in my book, 55% of hospitals can find, send, receive, and integrate data from outside their facility. So 55% is that good or is that bad? I'll leave that to your listeners to decide. When I started writing I had an update from an article I published where I said it was 40%. So, you know, we did make some progress. So now I'm going into a tab called care everywhere looking for these outside reports of things like x-rays and CDs. And sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. Sometimes the report if they if if the patient brings it to you and it's printed out what will happen is a medical assistant will scan it into our electronic system. And so sometimes it's scanned in and it's literally upside down. And you're twisting your head in front of the patient, staring at your computer or torquing your computer and trying to flip it upside down, trying to see the report. And so these are just some of the things, (laughs) like everything I just said, I've done multiple times. You know, These are not just one-offs. And these are some of the things that, doctors are doing on a regular basis and as you can imagine not only is this process extremely labor intensive it is also extremely error
0: prone yeah oh man we can go all day with this because not only that but like where it's uploaded in the chart is not the most common tab that i usually look at so i'll go to like there's a chart review tab and you can look at notes and stuff like that but it's often uploaded into Miscellaneous or something like that, and Mm so it it shows up as just a paperclip attachment thing. I don't know what that is. So then you go in, and you have to open the attachment in the chart. You have to open
1: every single one, trying to. I use the word sleuthing a lot in this section of my of my book, and really that is what it feels like. You are wasting your time as a detective just looking for data that's already there. And what do you do? I mean, sometimes you actually just repeat the test. That is a reality that happens all the time. It's, it's, you're weighing the costs, the time that you're wasting often in front of the patient sleuthing and sleuthing and clicking and clicking, not to mention, you know, then you're not making eye contact with the patient, all the things that you want to be doing to build rapport versus the costs of repeating a test. And sometimes what is the worst cost? You know, maybe it's a blood test. And so it's the cost of the time of the patient going back to the lab, the pain of the needle, the cost of the test, but sometimes the costs are much higher. I mean, I've talked to many people and including myself who've repeated scans and maybe you're giving IV contrast again. And there's a risk of kidney damage when you're giving extra loads of IV contrast. And I've done that. Every doctor I know has actually done that at some point. And then sometimes the costs are even higher when it's procedures that are being duplicated. Like biopsies or colonoscopies or pap smears, where something can go wrong if you're taking a sample. And so we are all in this situation where we have to weigh those costs on a regular basis. You're sitting with a patient, you have maybe 20 minutes, and they tell you about, let's say, an x ray that was just done at another hospital. And you're clicking and clicking. And after 10 minutes, you can't find that x ray. So what do you do? You know, you have, I, I say you have three choices. One is that you try to track it down yourself in your off time. So that is another thing that's happening that I think is really important to talk about. Doctors are then taking this work home with them as homework and doing it in their off time, trying to find that old x-ray. And maybe you're filling out a paper medical release, re- medical records release form, having it faxed over, calling the other hospital, trying to make sure it comes through. All those steps would be done in your own time. I would say option two is you... it on the patient and you say please get this report call medical records bring it back to me at our next visit is that fair no some patients can't do that that's that's choice number two and then choice number three is you repeat the test and again i've done all three of those things and these are the i think these are crucial decisions actually that we're all making on a regular basis that are not talked about nearly enough when we talk about decision making in medicine and the stakes it's often about things that you would expect there to be uncertainty about. I never expected there to be so much uncertainty about these logistical facts and making decisions like that of whether I should just repeat a test or move on and the stakes of getting it wrong. If you make the wrong decision, uh, in, you know, in,
0: in that scenario, do you ever just laugh about the? Chatter around AI and AI enhancing medicine and things like that. I mean, we're we're still dealing with CDs, and we're talking. Yeah, we're ta- we're talking about how artificial intelligence is going to really kind of augment patient care. And I have to say, it makes me very skeptical as I kind of go through my day to day about how AI is going to really do what people say it's going to do.
1: I one hundred percent agree. I have the benefit or the disadvantage depending how you look at it look at it of living in silicon valley so sometimes i meet with people who are very excited about these prospects and you know maybe want to collaborate on data data sharing in medicine or ai or something like that and the things that they talk about then versus me on the other side of the table where i'm like i can't see a lab from a doctor's office that was one block away that was already drawn i can't see it or it's upside down that's what I'm dealing with here. <laughs> like we are, I, we are so far away when people talk about the promises of AI. Innovation and implementation are obviously two very different beasts in my mind. And innovation means all the technology that can generate, we call it generative AI now, things like chat GPT and give us information. But how we've implemented this in the healthcare system so far look, we've, we've had things that can, that can be considered AI already in healthcare and they have not gone very well. You know, I talk in the book about things like order sets and, you, you know, if a patient comes into the hospital, we've gotten better at organizing some of this data and having the chart then notify us of what the next step should be. Um, if someone comes in with an emphysema flare, and you try to order one thing it will prompt you actually to order other things that are typically associated with an emphysema flare and so that is a form of technology that you know is akin to ai that's already happening but what happens in practice a lot of doctors now complain about too many alerts that the technology is actually distracting them from from doing the work that they should be doing because when you have too much big data and it's not organized and it's not it's not organized with doctors actually at the decision making table. we've We've had an end result where we have all of this big data and we don't have the proper technology or support staff to organize the big data in a way that is actually meaningful to doctors. And so I don't have that, <laughs> you know I, I am skeptical, I will say, about about the promise of additional AI in medicine. I think actually the biggest potential for AI in medicine now is to clean up some of the messes of the old AI, of the old technology. And there was an article a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times. I don't know if you saw this. I was talking about doctors saying the exact same thing where they think the best use of AI medicine is going to be the paperwork and the bureaucracy. And I read that and I completely agreed. I don't think that is you know, below AI's pay grade, you know, so to speak, to use it that way. I think this is, I wrote this book because I really believe this is the biggest problem actually that is facing American medicine today. This is something we're all dealing with. You're nodding along. We know this to be true, but most people don't know this to be true, that we are spending all of this time and effort just trying to put the pieces of a patient's story together, even when it's all there. And that it is so complicated and convoluted and labor intensive and error prone. And this is such a major issue that affects real people that we haven't given the proper attention to. I think we give a lot more attention to innovation than organizing that innovation and then putting it together and overcoming maybe these boring logistical and clerical hurt hurdles. And so, again, I think the best use of AI that might be coming would be to clean up the old AI. That doesn't sound very exciting, but the scope of the problem is so huge that before we start, start talking about all of these far off incredible things that AI could do to replace doctors and help them diagnose well help me first get the blood test a block up the street
0: i completely agree i think if patients knew what was going on behind the scenes if they peered you know peered under the rock they took a look under the hood i think they'd be horrified i mean i'm horrified to to like become a patient in this system it's it's so intimidating and frightening and then if you don't know there's probably comfort in some of that ignorance but even just a small look at what's going on, it it's stunning.
1: And that's why I wrote this book. And I will share that my very first few readers said the same thing. They were people who were not in healthcare and they were like, this is terrifying. <laughs> One of my early readers basically just said, so I learned from reading this that I just shouldn't get sick. If I get sick, I'm screwed. And then somebody else said, if I don't have a doctor in my family advocating for me, you know, I'm screwed. Even my mom, like she, she read it. She was one of my first readers. And she's like, I'm just never going to get sick. (laughs) And I think she knows, she knows the system pretty well. Both of her daughters are doctors. And I even include a chapter in the book about my father's critical illness. And my mom is very, very educated about the healthcare system. And she walked away feeling even more terrified after reading this. And Did I write this to terrify people? I mean, no, but I think it's important for people to know exactly what's happening for two reasons. One, again, is just to emphasize the scope of the problem. I don't believe this has really been given proper attention in any meaningful way. When people talk about why healthcare is broken and what's wrong with healthcare, we often tend to talk about things like costs. Again, huge problem. I don't want to minimize that. But we don't talk about this. We don't talk about how fragmented it is and how many errors are happening because of it. Both errors of commission and omission where you're repeating tests and scans or omission where you're getting the diagnosis wrong because you don't have all the information at your fingertips. So that's one reason. The second reason is I wanted to empower people actually to better navigate the system as it stands. And so while I put forth ideas in the book about improvements, And where I believe we need to go as a healthcare system to solve this problem, I, you know, I'm not too optimistic that all of these are going to be solved in the short term. I think a year from now, you know, this book will be very relevant. I hope it will be obsolete in 50 years. I can't make any promises. And so I wanted to empower people now to understand exactly what their doctors are facing so that they can then come to clinic visits more prepared. And I actually have gotten that feedback from readers so far, you know, even though it's very scary, they, they know, for example, to bring their whole medical history to doctors over and over again, because they can't take for granted that their doctors are communicating with each other in a seamless way, that the technology is transporting that information in a seamless way. And so they've come more prepared in just having their medical histories on them. And even knowing their medical histories, like an elevator pitch, that is another piece of advice I give in the book. And, you know, it's good to bring your, your stack of 500 pages, but it's also good to just know the highlights of your medical history so that you can best help your doctors help you.
0: Yeah. That, and that is at the end of the book,
1: is there like a glossary in there? Of... It's a checklist. It's a three-page checklist for patients. And I based it on something that one of my patients brought me. And I said, this is amazing. Where did you get this? And she said, I just started putting it together because I realized that my doctors didn't always know my history. And so I used that as inspiration to then make my own checklist, which is three pages. It's not too long. So yes, it's a bit longer than an elevator pitch, but it has all of the key information that any doctor would want about you. So things like your real medication list, Your allergy list and what happens if if you get one of these medications that you're allergic to, your medical history, your tests, where they are done, why they were done, what were the results, hospitalizations, surgeries, advanced directive, what your wishes would be in case of an emergency, including your healthcare proxy or the person you would want making decisions for you. I put all of that in the back of the book, and I hope that people use it. In their real encounters with, with doc print it out and, and
0: use it with their real encounters with doctors. I'm sorry, I kind of got us off topic a little bit, but mostly because <laughs> I got, got really into the conversation. But can you run us through what you do on the inpatient side? So in the hospital, we talked about the outpatient approach to first seeing a new patient. What about the hospital approach?
1: Oh yes. Yes. So in the clinic, I was saying the very first thing I look at is the medication list. In the hospital, I would say it also depends. So when I was a resident in internal medicine, my approach differed from when I was a fellow in oncology and hematology. When I was in the hospital as a fellow, the very first tab that I would look at was pathology because I wanted to know what kind of cancer the patient had and if they even were diagnosed yet with something because that was not always the case when I got calls in the hospital But I think it would be a little more informative to share what I did when I was admitting patients in internal medicine. So sometimes what I did was I played a game actually with myself where I looked at the orders from the emergency room and tried to guess why the patient was there just based on a few orders. So I did that when I was more seasoned, you know, because it was also a good kind of learning experience for me. And I'd be like, hmm, IV fluids, you know, NPO, maybe pancreatitis, dilated, maybe pancreatitis, so I played at my et cetera. So I played that game with myself. Usually though, I would say what I would do is I would look at discharge summaries first. So I would click on a tab at the top of the screen that says notes, and then I could filter those notes in different ways. And so I would click a few more buttons to make sure I could filter them properly. And then I would filter for discharge summaries. And so that would tell me if the patient was ever hospitalized before. And sometimes you click that way. And the answer was no, in which case, It's like the Russian dolls expand. There's this branch point in front of me. What do you do next? Choose your own adventure. So in that case, if they have never been hospitalized before, I would go back to the notes tab. I would unclick for discharge summaries and I would click for primary care visits. Sometimes that was called internal medicine. Sometimes that was called family medicine. Sometimes that was called primary care. So there's even a little bit of sleuthing involved there and try to find a good primary care note so I could see the patient's history. Sometimes there was no primary care doctor, period. And then I would just look at recent notes from whomever. So maybe that was an oncologist, maybe it was a rheumatologist, maybe it was a surgeon, maybe it was a neurologist. I would just see what brought them into contact with the healthcare system recently and why. And my hope would be that another doctor has organized the medical history in a well-written note so that they have done some of that legwork that I am trying to do. So I would feel very, very lucky if there was a well-written note and then I could copy a paragraph and paste that into my note so that I wouldn't be reinventing the wheel of sleuthing through these different pieces of data. Now, let's say the patient has been hospitalized before. So going back to the discharge summaries, I would read all those discharge summaries. I would see what they were in the hospital before and how they were treated because often they were there for something similar or even the same thing. And you don't want to reinvent the wheel if something has worked in the past. I share a story in my book about a patient with, uh, with a particular kind of congenital kidney disease who had been in my hospital nearly 100 times, all with the same issue. It was all because his potassium level was critically low and it needed to be repleted. And I will share, you know, I tell this story in the book that even though he had been in my hospital nearly 100 times, I went through that process I just described. I clicked through the discharge summaries. And I noticed really big discrepancies in every single time he came in with the identical problem and how he was treated. Because I imagine every doctor has their own approach to this. Every doctor was reinventing the wheel. Sometimes they have the time to do all of this clicking that I just described. Sometimes they don't. And they just say, I know how to treat low potassium and I'm just going to start treating it. And there were times when people overshot and he ended up in the intensive care unit because His potassium went way too high and then they had to give medications again to lower it and get it back to normal. Other times it was repleted a lot more smoothly. And then in one to two days, he was discharged. And I share that story in the book to emphasize what we're dealing with here, which is even in this case, which I thought would have been as formulaic as could be in a complex field like medicine, everyone knows how to replete potassiums; That's usually the job of the intern. And even in this case, with somebody with a, I would consider a more straightforward issue that most med you know, most doctors have experienced dealing with. And even though he had been in my hospital nearly a hundred times, we were not sleuthing for data from outside hospitals. There was still no formula that anybody could find in a reasonable time frame to treat the 101st episode of the same problem. And I share in the book too, that that process that I just described of trying to find data in the hospital, you ask any doctor that question, you're going to get a different answer. Everybody has their own approach to this. Everybody has what I call a system outside the system where, you know, you have your four color pens and your pockets that are stuffed with papers and your post-its. Yes, I still use post-its. And you come up with a system that maybe is the same system that worked for you in kindergarten and you're still using now. Whatever keeps you organized, everybody has their own system. And so that was my long-winded answer of what I do in the hospital when I'm admitting
0: a patient. That's a perfect segue into talking about transitions of care. Patients come into the hospital. Patients are discharged from the hospital. They go home. They go to another facility. They have or ostensibly have outpatient follow-up with a clinician maybe. You talk about this in the book. Take us through maybe some of the weaknesses in transitions of care in our current system.
1: So one of the weaknesses has to do with the tech that we just talked about. So when somebody is transitioned, let's say to a nursing facility after they leave a hospital, that nursing facility often doesn't have tech that's integrated with the hospital. So just like what we just described in trying to get outside data, the nursing facility is dealing with the exact same thing. And so often what they rely on is a fax. It is a piece of paper with a discharge summary that the physician wrote up. They don't have access to the electronic medical record often, meaning they can't click and look for anything that happened before the hospitalization. They only have access to whatever the doctor chose to write up in the discharge summary and copy paste into the discharge summary. So that means, for example, they don't often have access to primary care notes or specialist notes. Or any tests or data that were generated from before the hospitalization. So when you realize that as the person who's discharging the patient, you learn to really buff that sheet and try to make it a a perfect piece of writing for the next, for the nursing facility so that no errors fall through the cracks. Another thing that can happen in transitions of care is medication errors. And so this, again, often still has to do with the tech. There are systems where you're just copying and pasting the medication list, again, into the discharge summary, or maybe it's imported automatically by the electronic chart, but it's imported from one of the tabs that we talked about. Maybe it's the medications from before the hospitalization, and it doesn't include all the changes that were made during the hospitalization. So it's some striking number by the Joint Commission. It's like 80%. Of hospital discharges or admissions involve at least one medication error. Um, because again, we're just relying on these manual workarounds like copying, pasting, and double checking that that's correct. So I would call all of that one issue is the tech. Errors can happen just because the technology is making errors and forcing healthcare providers to manually correct for those errors. A second problem is who are they going to follow up with? And I devote the entire second section of my book trying to unpack that problem. And so patients, there's a lot in the book about the importance of primary care doctors. However, patients often need specialists that are just as important for ongoing care. What they need though, my point is what they need though is not somebody who's doing the one and done, like the ER visit or the hospitalization. They need someone who can follow up on issues that are changing over time and evolving. You need someone who can follow up on the labs that were generated in the hospital that hadn't returned yet by the time they go to their clinic visit. And then you need someone who's gonna make a change, like for example, order a test, prescribe a new medication, and then see them again to make sure it worked. And that is something that actually is is very, very lacking for a lot of people for so many reasons um and i talk about insurance barriers to this one of the thing one of the big barriers here is that insurance companies tend to reimburse higher for new patient visits than follow-ups and so imagine if you're a hospital administrator trying to create or, or you know an administrator trying to create a primary care doctor's schedule what are you incentivized to do you're incentivized to stack them with as many new patients as possible with follow up given short shrift, even in the very specialty where I would argue follow up is the most important. And so that's why the average primary care doctor accumulates a panel of over 2,000 patients. Our insurance incentives incentivize all doctors, not just primary care doctors, to see new patients over follow ups. And so when you're competing with 2,000 other patients for an appointment, maybe the wait list is going to be three months. So here's the problem someone's discharged from the hospital there's all these to do's. And then the next time they can get into see a, a new primary care doctor is three months. And so who's going to follow up on, on, on things that were left hanging when they were discharged from the hospital, like test results that were not that critical. They were still healthy enough to leave the hospital, but there's, there's just stuff pending that they were working up. I share so many examples like this in my book of a PET scan that was ordered and there was just nobody to follow up on the PET scan. And so what was my workaround I pulled it up a month later when I was on research time at home because I just knew the patient didn't have a primary care doctor. They didn't have an oncologist. It would take quite some time until they could see one. Who is going to follow up on that? And so a huge issue here is answering the question of that who and why that who is so blocked for so many reasons of seeing somebody in a timely manner with full access to that story.
0: Yeah, additionally, it's uh, I would say in addition to the following up aspect of this or following up a test, for instance, the fact that so few appointments are available for certain specialties or for primary care doctors, I mean, one of the hospitals that I kind of rotate through, they don't make the appointments for the patients when they, they get discharged. I think that's actually something that probably doesn't happen very often at most hospitals. But it happens at kind of the fancy academic medical centers, I think, more often. But this is sort of more of a community hospital that I do a few weeks at. And patients basically have to call to make an appointment with someone who the hospitalist or neurologist, whatever, recommends that they call. And months out. So what happens? They don't get seen in a timely fashion, which means that they get sick again and they have to come back to the hospital. And then you talk to them about what happened and they say, well, I have an appointment in two months and it's been six months since they were discharged. And it's just, it's kind of heartbreaking to see that because you recognize that a lot of these things could be prevented if we actually had reliable, stable systems of follow-up.
1: Yes. And so when talking about readmissions and errors or, you know, the idea that there's too many readmissions, it is directly tied to access in the outpatient setting. And it is not a, quote unquote, just a hospital problem. It is a problem with the whole healthcare system that there's there's nobody who can follow up with them in a timely manner. And the reasons for this get back to what I was saying earlier with how our insurance system is is incentivizes and reimburses. And it's not just for primary doctors, it's for specialists too. If they reimburse more for new patient visits than follow-ups, everybody gets full and everybody gets busy and everybody gets stacked, meaning all the doctors. Patients are really, really struggling to access their doctors. And if you look at data on wait lists, everything's going in the wrong direction. I mean, the wait list to see specialists and primary care doctors are only growing because you're competing with so many other people And the doctor's time is spent doing all these other things we just talked about. Like the the doctor's time is being sucked up with bureaucratic and clerical tasks when they went into medicine, usually to treat patients and to see patients. And so if somebody can't get an appointment in three months, really big mistakes can happen. I share in the book a story about a man who came in to me into the hospital with a blood clot in his calf. And... We ordered a CT scan. We saw he also had blood clots in his lungs. And we diagnosed him with a thrombophilic disorder where he was prone to clotting and basically recommended that he need to be on warfarin for the rest of his life to prevent such clotting from ever happening again. And so I say in the book, you know, the hard parts were done. We had clinched a rare diagnosis and came up with a treatment plan that would keep him safe. Well, obviously the hard parts were not done fragmented medical care made the next steps endlessly harder. So this patient did not have a primary care doctor. He did not have a hematologist because he didn't know that he had this blood clotting disorder. We did some sleuthing and referred him to somebody within network, but there was going to be this inevitable gap until we could see that hematologist. And the question arose, who was going to monitor his INRs until then? So For your listeners, I know there's a lot of doctors listening, but if somebody's on Warfarin, you need to also do blood monitoring, where you're looking at a test called the International Normalized Ratio, or INR, to see how well the blood is thinned. And that is a crucial part of being on this medication, Warfarin. You need to have your blood checked to make sure you're not thinning too much or too little. It always needs to stay within a tight range at all times. And so we started working through the options. One option was for the patient to do self-sticks at home. But then the same issue arose was someone, someone who's not him, someone who has prescribing capacity still needs to follow up on those tests because they might need to make changes to the dose if he's out of range. Okay, so that wasn't a great option. Waiting for the hematologist or primary care doctor was, was a non-starter because there were going to be multiple test results that came back in that time frame that nobody would be following up on. And what if one of them showed that his INR... Was, was really, really high and, and you know he, he was going to bleed. That's obviously a big problem and the dose needs to be adjusted. And so we came up with this plan, this marginally feasible plan, that called to discharge him and then have the INRs be faxed from the lab where he had them drawn to our doctor's workroom where the inpatient teams rotated every month. And so I remember sitting with the oncoming doctor, And giving sign out on my 20 or so active patients, patients that were still in the hospital. And then I gave sign out on this patient, this patient that was about to be discharged. Technically, it wasn't really her responsibility anymore. But I explained that this was the only plan we could come up with. These, these faxes are going to come to your fax machine over the next month. Can you please follow up on them and call this patient with instructions and make prescription changes as necessary? And she did. She did because I think you know in medicine we we do things like this all the time. We go above and beyond because we don't want somebody's plan to a patient's plan to fall through the cracks. But you know you could argue she could have said this is not my job Um, because it's not. I mean she she was functioning as a human stopgap for a fragmented system. She was doing clerical work that was above and beyond, but she did it because she was a good doctor. And she wanted to make sure that this patient stayed safe. And so she was getting these faxes and calling the patient every week with instructions, this patient that she hardly met, that was not even, she, he was discharged, you know, as soon as she came on service. And she did that because, because she wanted this person to stay safe. Now think of all the patients that don't have a doctor or another care team member like that, and what would have happened to that patient otherwise? If we did not have a plan for his INRs, I mean, maybe the best option in that case, not the best, but the only option in that case would also have been to keep him in the hospital a lot longer than was medically indicated because we don't have a safe follow-up plan. And obviously it's like, these are all, this is a lose-lose situation. Every option I laid out was a terrible option. And we just needed to find the best of the terrible options to keep this person safe.
0: And I think that latter option has been taken by multiple physicians. Like I know that has happened and it's, it's such a shame. What has been maybe the most, I don't know, aggressive or shocking action that you've had to take in this system to kind of create a stopgap or to get medical records? What do you think is the, maybe the most wild thing that you've had to do? I think something pretty wild besides those
1: INRs was to ask a medical student to run over to another facility <laughs> to try to get records, like literally run on the, their feet. <laughs> like we're talking about multi-billion dollar software here, and you can't get a CT scan from from somewhere up the street. And it's like, well, we have a student who was very motivated and had time and energy. Please go if you can. And they, they wanted to, like, I, I would never... Yeah, you know, ask them if they were not invested in doing this as well. Go run and try to get a copy of this. I would say a similar thing actually is something um, I include in the last the last chapter of my book that has to do with medical records, even within one facility, where our pediatric wing and our adult wing use kind of two separate electronic medical record keeping systems. And so I had this patient with she was very young she was 33 with colon cancer after she had just delivered a baby and so her records were in labor and delivery which was on the pediatric side and they had done some of the workup for the colon cancer when she was on the pediatric side like tumor markers but we didn't have access to that and so we someone on our team again walked over or ran over to the pediatric wing didn't have a login to the computer system there just track down some random doctor on the OBGYN team that was not even responsible for this person's care to log in so they could start sleuthing through a different electronic chart within this, like again, this was down a hallway. This was in within our same hospital trying to get that data. And sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, sometimes you just repeat the tumor markers or the scans. But I would say, yeah, that that physical kind of running, that manual labor. The irony when we're sitting in front of multi-billion-dollar software and we're relying on things like post-its and the like—that's another thing. Actually, um, I would add. I would say that just the third, the third very odd roundabout thing is leaving post-its on my colleagues' desks because I know if I put a critical message into the electronic medical record, it could—it's going to get buried. It's going to get buried under an avalanche of noise. I don't know what tab to put it in that somebody's going to see it. I'm just, you know, making the chart even more cluttered and redundant. And so, getting back to that to that story I told earlier about that young man that was hospitalized nearly 100 times for the low potassium. It's like at the end of that entire story, once I figured out the reasonable treatment plan, I struggled with where to put my newfound discovery. Because I knew if I just put it in a discharge summary, I would, by definition, be making it longer, more convoluted, more cluttered. How was I going to guarantee that the next doctor who admitted this person was going to know the, the right way to treat him? If I had known who that doctor was, I would have just called them or left a post-it on their desk. That would have been my workaround. It would have, it would have been just going back to the, the basics, being face-to-face with a colleague, However, I didn't know who that next doctor was going to be. So I actually didn't have a good way of doing this. And I write in the book too, it it has become a bit comical, all the ways we try to signal important in the chart at this point, because we know it's so cluttered. Like I've, I've turned my font red, I've bolded it, I've underlined it. I've put three exclamation points. I've done all of these things. You know, I add things to the very top of my note where it doesn't technically, you know, maybe it's something that should be at the bottom of the note. I've done every single one of these things and more and things unfortunately still fall through the cracks.
0: In the book, you write that 63% of primary doctors believe the electronic health records have generally improved care, but 71% felt that the charts contribute to physician burnout. Maybe let's talk about how this seeming paradox is possible.
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. So the charts... I, I will say, after we've talked now about all the problems that the charts have, the charts were not all bad. I think it is a definite good that we don't chart by hand anymore. And I just want to say that really clearly. If we're talking about missing data, there was obviously way more data that was going missing when you were writing things down on a piece of loose leaf paper And that was lost in a binder somewhere, or you found it and you literally couldn't read the other doctor's handwriting. So yes, it is good that we have electronic charts. However, the same technology that was supposed to drastically reduce doctor's workload has drastically increased it. And that is the paradox here. Having all of this information in one place, having access to big data, that was supposed to help doctors. And we talked before that we already have tools of AI. We have tools of AI now that were supposed to help doctors Better generate diagnoses and treatment plans. However, when all of that is scattered throughout an electronic ecosystem that is not organized and was not designed for doctors to take care of patients, it has generated hours and hours and hours of work. And it is work of two things it is work of finding information you need. So, all of those clicks that we just talked about, all of that sleuthing, trying to find something. There was a study showing that an average shift a 10 hours in the emergency room involves 4,000 clicks. So there's all that sleuthing, just trying to find information. And then the second piece we didn't talk about as much that directly contributes to burnout is the data entry. So it's putting things back into the chart. And maybe they're already there, but you're putting them in a new place because that is what is required in order for the chart to let you close out the encounter and sign it. And so the chart might be littered with the fact that a patient has a smoking history, but you still have to write it when you're ordering a CT scan to evaluate for lung cancer because there's no way to directly input that information from another part of the chart into the part of the chart that you need. And so all of this data entry, when I see a new patient in clinic, um, the part of the story I didn't mention before that's part of my workup is they will also fill out a paper form that's handed to them by the medical assistant with their medical conditions And if there's something in there that doesn't match what I have in the chart, then I'm sitting and typing and inputting that data in front of them. And so so all doctors and other providers are doing the work of being data entry clerks. And that has directly contributed to burnout. And that is a really, really important point. Almost half of doctors say that they are burnt out. And surveys show that the number one cause of that is bureaucratic tasks. And this has stayed true. I really want to emphasize that this has stayed true both before and during the COVID pandemic because you know we have a lot of theories about why doctors might be burning out. And I think the toll of the work is one thing, but actually the real reason, the thing that's changed in the last 10 plus years is the amount of work that's now required, clerical and bureaucratic work just to get through your day when you are trained to do something else. You are trained to be a doctor. You want to think about diagnoses and treatment and communicating with compassion with your patients. And instead, we are spending half of our time or sometimes more clicking boxes and sleuthing for data and putting information into the chart that's already there. And this is just completely, all the surveys confirm that this is completely Correlated with why doctors are burning out and sometimes quitting medicine entirely. I think for people who are burnt out, there's a couple choices. Some people go part time because in medicine, everybody knows the secret that part time is full time. So if you want to be a full time doctor job, you go part time <laughs> or you leave medicine entirely. And I interviewed many doctors for my book, particularly primary care doctors who are burnt out. And, and the work that was related to the EMR, and again, just putting those fragments of a patient's story together, was a direct reason for why these doctors were looking
0: for alternative careers. You spend a chapter on the long and grueling hours of residence. You know, talk about like 28-hour shifts, 24-hour shifts, and that seems to stretch on for eternity for those experiencing them. It's pretty brutal. Can you tie this to fragmentation for us? How does this lead to a, a fragmented system?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I do not come down against these come out against these hours because of any of the obvious reasons that I think are talked about a lot, which is that they're exhausting and they're brutal and it's hard to stay awake for 28 hours. I think all of that is true, but I think we know that already. I think the argument that has never really been made that I make in my book is that these hours are actually a root cause in aggravating fragmented medical care. And I will explain what I mean by that. So when you are working 28 hours, what happens is you end up having a team of a couple doctors who are all doing these shifts. So in my case was when I was in the ICU, it was four doctors. And each of us had authority, extreme authority for one day and one night. And then we're gone the next day sleeping. So there was no continuity over days. We have traded continuity of hours for continuity over days. And so there was no person who was overseeing the patient's entire story. And so there was kind of this diffusion of responsibility for larger questions that didn't directly that didn't directly come up during your 24 or 28 hours. So larger questions like this patient is is still on a ventilator, you know, shouldn't their lungs be improving by now? Do we need to rethink the diagnoses? Those kinds of questions actually would often Get lost because there was no primary doctor from day to day who was overseeing the big picture of the patient's story and thinking about these larger trends. There can be no thinking about larger trends when you're actually working 24 or 28 hours. I want to say 28 because that is the reality of it. It's 24 hours by the ACGME plus four hours for transitions. So in reality, it's it's 28 hours. And so when when I worked these shifts, there was one of my co-residents. I say in the book, I remember her slumping against the nurse's station and saying something like, like, nobody knows anything about these patients. And I said, yes, it's, it's chaos. You, you cover what's directly in front of you, like the breadcrumbs, the medical breadcrumbs that are directly in front of you during your shift, you react to complications. And then these larger questions go unanswered because it was nobody's job to think about them. Nobody had the time or the ability to think about them. And nobody had enough context to see these larger trends play out. And I include this in the book because it's part of the section on having a regular doctor. And I think, again, that applies whether you're talking about a regular doctor in the outpatient setting, like a primary care doctor, or a regular doctor in the hospital. It is really important to have the same doctor from one day to the next in the hospital because you've already done all of that legwork of trying to understand their story. And in order to see trends play out, you need that context. And 28 hours erases that. And the incredible irony here is that they are framed as a way of defragmenting healthcare. The ACGME's logic says that these these hours are allowed to allow seamless continuity of care. I think there's there's a huge problem here. Continuity of care for hours, not continuity of care for days. And I take us through one of my shifts, you know, in 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 the book about how this actually plays out. And the reality of 28 hours is the patient's story doesn't end on hour 28. We need to think about what happens at hour 29 and 40 and 70 and 100. And in that case, it's a different doctor who's rotating on the patient's case on every single one of those hours. And these larger trends not only do they fall through the cracks. Those were not really studied. You know, they, the ACGME look the, the council that, that decides residency hours, they looked at really glaring problems that happened, such as patient mortality or an accidental laceration, really things like that. They these studies did not look at things like all of these things I just described, like time spent, you know, maybe extra time spent on a ventilator that necessitated a tracheostomy that otherwise would not have been needed. Because nobody was taking ownership over that big picture of this person should be coming off a ventilator by now. It's time to rethink the diagnoses. It didn't look at any of that. And it didn't look at the labor that then um, we had to go through, the doctors have to go through, of sending these frantic text messages to each other when somebody was home sleeping, trying to pick up where they left off. And so I bring it up because, because of the irony that these are framed as a way of seamlessly continuing care and i also bring it up because i think this is actually really easy to fix compared to a lot of the stuff that we have been talking about so i call it the low hanging fruit of fragmentation i don't want my book to be all doom and gloom i think there are things that are harder to fix that involve wading through partisan policy fights wrangling multi-billion dollar software companies and then there are fixes like eradicating 28-hour shifts and those that can actually be done right now. And so I make this argument of how these shifts actually fragment care because I believe it is something that can be easily fixed right now and even the mundane aspects and questions of scheduling can really make or break continuity.
0: What is preventing programs from doing that? Is it a question of how many physician how many physician residents they have available? Is it a question of funding? What's the issue here?
1: No, it is an attitude from within the medical community. That is why these shifts have not been eradicated. So I cover about five decades of research in my book that are essentially trying to... I have a lot of problems with the research because in my view, a lot of this research is essentially trying to prove that 28 hours are okay and they're defensible and that young doctors should still be doing them. And it's an attitude from within the medical community that says that this is good for young doctors learning, and it's good for their patients to work these hours. We had to do it, so you have to do it. And so there's been decades of research trying trying to defend these hours. And I'll give an example. There were a couple trials. There was the first trial. We don't need to get into all the the weeds here, but there was a first trial that looked at first-year surgeons and randomized them to 16 hours versus 28 hours. Then there was an eye compare trial that looked at internal medicine residents that were also first year that were randomized 16 versus 28 hours. By the way, I was one of those residents. I was, these hours came from, from experimenting on, on me. And the way these studies were designed was they were trying to test the hypothesis that 28 hour shifts were no worse than 16 hour shifts, meaning not that they were better, just that they were no worse meaning there was not increased patient mortality you know glaring effects on doctors like sleep and happiness etc and education and the i compare trial showed that yes patient mortality was the same they're no worse but would that convince you or anybody else actually, rather that that these shifts are actually Better, and so I believe the research has been, um, you know, designed in a way that actually reveals the hands of the people who are doing the research, which is that they've been trying to defend these hours these hours for years and years and years. And I cite another, you know, I get into the weeds of all this research in, in my book. I cite another one where, after it, it was in 2011, that first year residents finally were given shifts of 16 hours as a cap and not 28 hours, and. People immediately stormed and started trying to find research that this was was trying to find data that this was hurting people. And so people looked through 3 million notes from the VA and Medicare and tried to say that these, these lower hours for interns was causing all sorts of problems, like reduced educational opportunities. It didn't even help them sleep better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is not an insolvable problem, actually, at all. This is not a problem of number of residents. This is not a problem of scheduling impossibility. This is a problem that is still persisting because the council in charge and is looking at data that is generated by people who share the same belief as them which is that these hours are good. They're good for young doctors. They're good for patients. And I am not the first person to say that these hours perhaps are not good. Um, I think, again, the unique part that I'm bringing up was how these hours actually fragment care. But even the eye compare study showed that it was doctors, young doctors, residents, well-being suffered when they were working 28 hours. And even with that data, the ACG loves data, right? I mean, they love p-values and statistical significance. Even with all of that data, that data was brushed aside because they looked at the subset of data that said, but look, patient mortality is the same. And so I think there was cherry picking involved. I think uh, you could look at all of this data and come to two very different conclusions. And they decided to come to the conclusion that 28 hours were favored. And so the final thing I'll say on that is that in 2017, those protections were eliminated for first year doctors or interns so that 28 hour shifts are fair game for all residents. And the last I reached out to the ACGME in 2022, they said there were no planned changes to that.
0: So we're further ossifying things, sounds like.
1: I don't think it's going to change anytime soon unless they read my book. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I hope the, i hope I hope you send them copies
1: <laughs> What I will say in a less um, arrogant way is that I think there have been enough people who have criticized these shifts, but I don't think they've been criticized actually for this particular reason. And this reason is really, really important. When you're fragmenting medical care from one day to the next, these really large things that affect patients one hundred percent slip through the cracks. And patient harm is occurring in addition to the harm to doctors.
0: One of the most moving parts of the book and one that hit home quite strongly was your experience with your father and seeing the system, the fragmented system from the other side of the table. Can you tell us that story or, you know, even if it's an abbreviated story and, it doesn't have to be though. And, um, and how it relates to the fragmented system we inhabit.
1: I include that story in the third section of the book with, which has to do with medical culture and mindsets and how fragmentation can actually come from within medical culture as a mindset that is taught and perpetuated. And I saw this by being at my dad's bedside for sometimes 24 hours a day. So on February 23rd, 2016, my father suffered a sudden cardiac arrest, uh, in the emergency room. And for your listeners who might not be as, uh, for for lay audience, a sudden cardiac arrest is when your heart stops and a code was called a code blue was called, meaning all these providers descended on him. They did 20 minutes of chest compressions, nine electric shocks, broke six ribs. And by the end of the code, he was alive. Fortunately but he was on a ventilator. He was dependent on vasopressor support just to keep his blood pressure up. And he was critically ill in multi-organ failure for almost a month. And he ended up being in the hospital total for several months because of complications that then snowballed. So this was the worst time of my life. That day when my father had a cardiac arrest, I do share the whole story of getting this news and finding out. But I I wanted to talk about actually those next steps, which are the complications that then ensued that kept him in the intensive care unit and then kept him in the hospital for all of that time. And so one thing that happened was he was sedated when he was on a ventilator. So when he was on a ventilator, it's very, very uncomfortable to be on a ventilator. Patients will often writhe in discomfort. And the appropriate way to deal with that is to sedate them so that they don't feel all of that discomfort. There was one night when a nurse had an order that was written as a range sedate to, keep com- sedate to keep comfortable, so that she had the decision power over what that dose of sedative should be. It ended up being a sedative that was run as a drip all night. And the next morning, when we were hoping to extubate him, we couldn't extubate him, even though his lungs were okay because he could not be aroused after the sedative drip that had been running all night, he was sleeping and he had a kidney injury from the cardiac arrest. And it was very, and that caused it to be very slow to clear all of those sedatives that had been given overnight. So he actually ended up sleeping for it was about four more days after that. He was essentially comatose. And that was really, really terrifying. That might've been the worst part of it in retrospect for me, because after one day, it was easy to say it's the sedative drip. It's going to wear off. After four days, when my dad was unconscious, we didn't know if it was still the sedative drip or this was the worst case scenario, which is anoxic brain injury after a cardiac arrest and that that was it and that he was never going to wake up. And so we were waiting and waiting and waiting. Fortunately, a CT scan showed that he did not have an brain injury. His EEGs, that to look for seizures, were okay. He started to wake up after four or five days, and the ventilator came off. However, that was not the end of it. So that one maybe small oversight, that one mistake in the sedative drip, actually caused all of these other complications. So because he had then been on a ventilator for nine days instead of three days, as he was intended to be, he couldn't swallow and so a feeding tube was put in for nutrition and then another just perhaps small oversight was made one of one of the rotating you know 28 hour rotating residents forgot to order free water with the tube feeds and so he became very dehydrated his sodium shot up and he became very very confused because he was so hypernatremic his sodium was so high and so at the time i remember advocating That that He kept asking me for water every few minutes. And I advocated that this is from the high sodium. He needs free water. The team came by. They thought, well, you know, confusion in a critically ill patient can have a multitude of causes. He still has kidney failure. You know, maybe he's confused because of buildup of waste products that his kidneys aren't clearing. Uremia, let's put a dialysis catheter back in and restart the dialysis. So a dialysis catheter was put back in. And they started doing dialysis and it wasn't helping his confusion. It was once we started correcting the free water that was helping his confusion. But now look at where we were. A dialysis catheter catheter was put in because of confusion that was caused by a high sodium, that was caused by forgetting an order for free water, that was caused by trouble swallowing, that was caused by nine days on a ventilator. And so one or two seemingly small problems like over sedating and then forgetting the free water actually led to all of these problems. And I was at the point where I was just praying that he wouldn't get a dialysis associated catheter infection, right? Something that is very, very common that can easily happen because of these unnecessary things that happen after the fact. And so how did all of these things happen? You know, in retrospect when I was a little bit more, I could be more emotionally detached from it and think about what happened. The way this ties to fragmented for me was that every provider was looking at that snapshot in time of what was going on and not the big picture. And so what I mean by that was, you know, that nurse who sedated my dad had really good intentions and I really don't want to be overly critical of her or of anybody else in this story, but she looked at a snapshot in time. This patient is uncomfortable on the ventilator. What is the correct solution to this? Sedate. So it made me start thinking about other instances in medicine where we're doing just that, where we're reacting or overreacting to a snapshot in time at the expense of the patient's larger story. So even once my dad started to wake up, he was still uncomfortable on the ventilator. I realized that anybody walking into that middle of that story, any new team member could walk in, see my dad uncomfortable again and think, okay, sedate, which was actually the exact opposite of what needed to be done at that time. We needed to extubate him, not sedate him further. And so then there were, you know, there was another example that came up later during his hospitalization, where he ended up having a a really severe GI bleed, um, a gastrointestinal bleed from ischemic colitis after the cardiac arrest. And pretty quickly, you know, the surgeons came by and the solution that was offered to us was a hemicolectomy, which is a major, major surgery, not just for his quality of life later, but he had just survived a cardiac arrest, the chances of of dying on the operating table were very real here. Um, And so I saw that again as as reacting to this one fragment of a patient's story, the patient's bleeding, this is what we do about it. And I make the argument that I think medicine can do a lot better to praise close proactive follow-up in all of these cases. So watching and and waiting with the GI bleed and doing supportive care, not correcting all causes of confusion at once, you know, when my dad when my dad was confused, but actually just fixing the free water, forgetting about the uremia question, and doing one thing at a time and and then fo- actually following up and seeing whether that worked. And so this was a culture, uh, this was a cultural thing I noticed within the medical team, where fragmentation can actually come from from our mindsets and how we are taught. And again, I want to emphasize, I'm not blaming anybody here. I think it's because medicine is so fragmented systemically that we all develop this attitude and are even taught this attitude, touch it once, meaning make a decision and just move on. And it's because we have to make 300 or 400 high stakes decisions in a day, but that touch it once and move on attitude can foster this culture of looking at this one fragment that is most pressing in the moment, neglecting the patient's overall story and complications can spiral because of that.
0: And this happened to someone with two daughters who are physicians, who know the system, who know what, you know, labs to look at and what questions to ask and when to push and when to back off a bit. And, you know, it it sort of illustrates just how noxious the system can be.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think we were very, even though this was the hardest time of our lives, we were very privileged. That my father had two children, adult children who were physicians advocating for him medically, knowing, you know, knowing enough medically to make recommendations on next steps. Although I will say that is not the position I ever expected or wanted to be in. I much would have rather to be able to just step back and focus on grieving, which is what I what I was doing I, I didn't really want to advise the medical team, but I quickly saw that if I needed to advocate if I wanted to advocate for my dad and the stakes could not be higher because they couldn't, his life literally depended on a lot of these decisions that I, w- that I would have to intervene. And so yeah, even with both of us intervening and making our cases for things that we thought were best for him, these complications still happened. And I think for every one of those examples I gave, there are, of course, systemic changes, too, that could have helped prevent these. And the electronic medical records, of course, would have helped. Prompting uh, prompting an order for free water when you insert a feeding tube, right? Like That would have helped rather than relying on the doctor to manually remember it and insert it every time. Not working 28-hour shifts would have helped. This actually came up, this was directly tied into my, my dad's care here because there was no, it, it felt like often there was there was no primary because each resident would, would rotate so often. And so something that we told to somebody the day before, you know, not necessarily would be passed on the next day about these larger trends like coming off the ventilator. So there are many systemic changes that would have helped in his case. That being said, I think there are also changes that individuals could have made in what happened to him. And again, I, sh- I want to emphasize a third time, I share it not to be critical of any of these providers, but I hope we can learn, we can all learn something from this, that there's a mindset, I believe, a big picture mindset that any physician can develop. And I believe it can be taught. I believe it can be learned. And I believe we can all do better to develop that big picture mindset and look for a larger story, even with all of these systemic barriers facing us, do not make snap decisions in the moment that lead to quick fixes along a conveyor belt that end up causing more problems later
0: do you think that's what makes a great physician i mean now having been on either side of things like being a, a doctor and having a family member requiring intensive medical care it, is that what makes a great physician what what do you think
1: i i do i think that's what that can distinguish physicians And I think the best physicians that I know and that I work with, what do they have in common? They actually do all have that big picture mindset. And I think while generalists are more trained to have it, and then, you know, therefore more accustomed, specialists can definitely have it too. And there are specialists that I work with that they don't just look at their one slice and they look at what the other doctors are saying about the patient and sometimes pick up on things that are quote unquote, outside their specialty, because they just look at the big picture and realize that something is not adding up here. And I, I think this can be taught. And I, you know, I work with a lot of residents now and I, I teach residents. And it's something that I try to emphasize. And I hope my intention is that I try to, to model that as well. Um, because, because I do believe we can all learn that and it can really make the difference uh, for a patient and then distinguish those really those really great physicians.
0: What can we do to unify a fragmented system? You know, where do we go from here? You mentioned, you know, reducing 28-hour shifts as one possibility. What else are you kind of thinking of?
1: I think there's a couple things we can do here, and some are easier and some are harder. And so I will give that as a as a qualifier. I think focusing on the electronic charts, I think really the first step here is awareness of what a mess this has become. We have not talked about this seriously enough in our public discourse about how this is a root cause of medical error. So a few things we can be doing. We can be investing more in what's called interoperability. That means data sharing between different facilities in a way that's organized and meaningful. We can give patients access to their charts in an easy way. We didn't didn't talk about that that much during the segment, but having patients have easy access to their charts so that then they can be responsible for keeping their medical story straight. And then we can work on organizing the information within the charts we already have. We can clean up big data. Um, We have the technology now to do that, but I think the key question here is who is at the decision-making table it needs to be doctors, healthcare providers, patients, and patient advocacy groups that decide how the technology is organized. And I do talk in the book a bit about some quality improvement projects that are ongoing now to better organize the technology. So that's one. In terms of follow up, I think I think fighting with insurance companies, that is a harder thing to fix, right? About reimbursing more for follow up than for new patient visits, et cetera. But that being said, there are, I think one thing we need to be doing now is just investing more in primary care, period, because the primary care doctor often is the person who, in theory, is doing what the patient is doing now, which is keeping the full story together and overseeing that patient's story over time. So we need a higher federal investment in primary care compared to other developed countries. And then we can be focusing on scheduling. This mundane question of scheduling as the make-or-break issue it is, and so I give the example of eradicating twenty-eight-hour shifts. I think there are other examples within scheduling right now, but we need to do scheduling that optimizes the continuity between patients and doctors from one day to the next. And sometimes that just involves reshuffling and just thinking—you know, thinking with this as a priority how we arrange doctor schedules. That that continuity is crucial. And then the third piece has to do with culture and so the story of my of my father gives the example of that of how we can be thinking and training the next generation of physicians to be thinking big picture about patients to be thinking about patient's future and not reacting or overreacting to a fragment in time and to be thinking even as specialists about how to reconcile different narratives that different doctors are coming up with and seeing whether the big picture adds up to a reasonable conclusion that is a cultural change. I think it can be done now. And I think we can all do better to train the next generation of physicians with it.
0: The book is called Fragmented. Alana, thanks so much for taking the time today.
1: Thanks for for, uh, having me for this very important conversation.
0: This podcast has been produced by the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Visit eppc.org to learn more about our programs, events, and podcasts.